is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed. This episode's brought to you by Artwork Archive. Artwork Archive is an online platform that makes it easy to manage all aspects of an art career. I know this firsthand because I actually use Artwork Archive to organize and manage my own business. Artwork Archive tracks your artwork, sales, shows, and contacts, automatically builds schedules, and sends you reminders so you're always one step ahead. And for a limited time, Beyond the Studio listeners get 20% off when you get started with their free trial at www.artworkarchive.com beyond. Start connecting with collectors, getting organized, and building your art career now. Today, Nicole and I will be interviewing artist Lucy Pulse, who, in addition to being a fantastic sculptor, is a professor of art at University of California, Davis, and currently resides in Berkeley, California. Let's get started. Well, hello. Hello. (laughs) And again, my voice doesn't usually sound like this. I woke up with this. I don't know what the deal is. Oh, no. It's like yeah. your body knew that you were doing an audio recording today yeah. and it said, right. hey, <laughs> yeah. we're going we're gonna to feel a little rough. I have some questions about your own creative journey and career, um, but first for a frame of reference, could you maybe tell us just a little bit about your art practice in general? For those listening who may not be at all familiar with your work, just a sort of basic introduction to what you make and kind of broader themes you might be thinking about just currently, and then I think can kind of dive further into your early career and what some of those creative opportunities looked like for you then. For a long time, you know, since like the mid 80s, my work has been like, I look at the things we discard to figure out what it says about us as people. When I first came to California, there was all this like corrugated metal stacked up along country roads. You know, first I lived in Sacramento for a few years. And when you drive around, you just see this corrugated metal. And of course that was from outbuildings, from agriculture. So then I was, I was thinking about agriculture and how it's so big in California. It's like big ag in California. And, and how big ag determines what we buy. This was in 85, so we didn't have like Whole Foods. And a lot of these are like really, you know, natural food stores. You would go to Safeway or, you know, th- th- those kind of grocery stores. And I started thinking how well, what we eat is determined by what these big farms can make in mass. And... Um, and I also was really like struck by uh, the landscape and the, um, I didn't realize that the California landscape was really a lot of what the illustrations I saw as a kid in kids' books. You know, I thought oh, that was yeah. a made up landscape. And then when I came to California, I went, oh, all those oh, pictures dear. I saw as a kid was California, you know? So I was working with fiberglass and this corrugated metal that was, you know, from old building, old outbuildings. And then as I was doing that work, 
I started going to a thrift store, one thrift store all the time, like three times a week, because this work I was doing was so, it was so labor intensive that I just needed like a way to relax. And I have to say, there was no internet then. So you couldn't like go on and troll, like type in something and, and you know, you know how you sort of look for things just to relax, you know, Mm -hmm. um, on the internet, you couldn't do that. So I would go to the thrift store. And, and I would just sort of go, why is there so many of these? Like, why all the same exact thing? You know, like there'd be a pile of the same kind of thing. And then eventually there'd be, the prices would be marked down. And I'd said, well, wait a second, this is a thrift store. It's supposed to be cheap to begin with. It's not supposed to have like a higher price and then go down. It should just be like cheap, right? The, the cheapest yeah. price to begin with. But no, like even things like stuffed animals would start out as like $1 and then go to 75 cents and then go to 50 cents and then go to 25 cents. And when I would find these items that kept being marked down, I would buy them. I'd buy them when they were marked down because I would go, there's something here. I don't know what, but it's something significant. And it's like nobody wants these things. Uh, there was a period of time in the 80s where everyone wore turtlenecks, right? And it was like that look. And then eventually it became not the look. And you couldn't like give away a turtleneck. Nobody wanted it, you know? So, so like you, you know, in the thrift stores, I'm sure there was all these turtlenecks, but, um, I think so I'm just, they are coming back, but, (laughs) but the main point is there are things that are in that everyone gets. And then if you keep them too long, all of a sudden your, your whole like life looks a little like dated. It seems like everybody at the same time goes, oh my God. I must get rid of this stuff and they give it to the thrift shop at the same time. But it's usually like 20 years after they bought it. So it's like, it was probably sitting in the basement of the garage for a good 10 years before they finally decided to get rid of it. While I was doing that work, I started noticing people when they don't want something, they put it in front of their house and they often will put little signs. The most common one is free, right? Yeah. but sometimes they'll put on something that's like a microwave. They'll say free works or free works manual inside or free cute chair, cute chair. And I would walk by these in my neighborhood and I would always stop. Like if it said cute, I'd like, is it cute? You know, like what makes it cute? And I was, and I go, it really is cute. And then I'd be thinking, where could I put that chair in my house? You know, like I then wanted, I was like hooked. I, what I really liked was how these things looked in their environment. So I started photographing them in situ, you know, and then I was like, well, then how do I do work with this? But I ended up printing it on translucent fabric and then hanging it and things would be in back or in front, back in front of these printed things that somehow related and somehow didn't relate. Like you had to think about why they were together. That was this series that it's in Latin and I title everything in Latin and English and I don't speak Latin, but the the title of that one was the meaning of the Latin was at this place. It's so funny how these things just happen. They just push you along. Like I was happy doing that work. I have thousands of photographs that I've not worked with, but all of a sudden everything on the street disappeared. And I was like, what the heck? Where did everything go? Like no one has a pair of tennis shoes they want to give away? Nothing. And that was right in 2008 when the housing market crashed. And I'm like, I live in Berkeley. People aren't foreclosing in my little orbit that I walk around in. It didn't matter. It's like everyone got afraid. And so I'm just thinking, here you have old blender because you got a new one. 
I better not put this outside in front of the house because who knows? I might end up without a job. I might have to sell this at a yard sale. You know, I don't know what they're thinking, but it just disappeared completely. Then I, you know, was hearing all these stories and I called a friend of mine who's an agent and said, what, what is this about foreclosed homes? I mean, that sounds like 1930. That doesn't happen. This is the United States. And he said, oh my God, all my listings are, are bank owned. So I was, can I come and see? Because I was reading these stories about people up and leaving and and like bowl of cereal with a spoon in it, you know, like they left that fast they, that they were, you know, finished eating a bowl of cereal or some was still left in the bowl and they left the house. And so I went and my, the first house I went into was exactly that, you know, furniture all over the place. The other thing they wrote about was like, there'd always be like some sort of vandalism or weirdness. And this had a little pile of poo like dog poo on the carpet in the living room. And it was like exactly what I was reading. So then I started photographing the interiors of bank-owned houses and houses that are in probate. It was really great because this agent would just allowed me to go in. He'd give you the code. I could go in and photograph. And and then I started doing a various series. I've done a whole bunch of different series with this work and I'm still working on it because um, I just find different ways to think about it because the, the whole idea of home is... It's still relevant now, even though we're not in a housing crisis in terms of houses being undervalued. Now we're in a housing crisis because houses are overvalued. Housing in general is overvalued in relation to what people make. And so there's all of this in, uh, instability around uh, housing and safety. I don't know what it's like in Baltimore. When I was teaching in North Carolina, we gave ourselves three years there. And then we said we were going to move. My husband was also an artist. Whether or not he got a job or I got a job, we were moving. So we went and looked at Baltimore because we were like, what city had a lot of industry at one time and now doesn't? And so they have all this old factory buildings, similar yeah. to Providence and cheap housing. Right, great for artists. Yeah, yeah. East Coast. So we went and explored Baltimore and we were all set to move there. And then very, very late, uh, I got the job at Davis. Oh, wow. You know, semesters usually end the beginning of May. Mm -hmm. And I got a call first week in May to come out interview at Davis. So I was like done teaching and I didn't realize, you know, I thought, oh, that search is over. I just haven't gotten you know, notified yet, but they were still doing it. In a way, we were saved by the bell of my getting that job because otherwise we both would have moved to Baltimore with no job, uh, needing two studios and having student loans to pay off. Yeah. So that would have been um, a challenge. It might have been cool though, you know. If you would have told me when I was 25 or 30 that I would see people living in tents on the sidewalk or in the street, I would say you're nuts. That will never happen. Even in New York City, and New York was a scary, dangerous place in the late 70s, early 80s, there were homeless, but just a few here or there, because there were hotels that were just single rooms, SROs, I think they called them. And so you didn't need a lot of money. You could be pretty broke and still have a place to stay. I think what's changed is all of housing has gotten so expensive. Yeah, it's so amplified here in the Bay Area, too. The cost of living is so high. And so have you always lived a little further out in, it sounded like Sacramento and now Berkeley? Well, actually, I, I lived in Sacramento. And then because I had a tenure track job, I had a lot of pressure to show and get people to see my work. And you could not get people to come from San Francisco up to Sacramento. That was just right, too far. Yeah. After three years, we moved to Vallejo, 
we couldn't afford to move further down. And Vallejo was, you know, the perfect city for me because it, was, it, it used to be a Navy town. The Navy left, so it was a little down and out. You know, I kind of like those kind of towns. They're sort of anonymous and there's all kinds of people. We lived in a neighborhood that was a little tough, but we were able to buy a house that my husband could have his photo studio on the second floor. And we actually built an outbuilding for very little money that was my studio. And it worked great. Yeah, um, sounds great. And we would have stayed there really, except that I had, I got pregnant. You know, this was a neighborhood where if you saw kids in your neighbor's yard, you know, picking fruit from the trees and you'd say, I don't think you should be in there. And they'd say like, F you, you know, and start throwing rocks at you, you know, like <laughs> these, these were tough kids in this neighborhood. Sounds like my neighborhood. (laughs) And so I was like, I don't know if I have a child. And I knew it was going to be a boy. So I was like, he's going to be the kid with the bow tie, you know, and the hair slicked back. And then all the neighbor kids are, you know, chasing him down the block because, you know, he doesn't fit in. It would be a place where you'd have to drive the child to get culture. I just didn't feel that that's a way to grow up. Culture is in some other place. I wanted him to grow up in the place that had culture. It was a huge deal to move. It was like our expenses just quadrupled. I didn't have a studio, so I had to rent in Oakland for a number of years till I got you know, the permits to build the studio that I have behind my house. And even that was terrifying because what I wanted to spend on the studio ended up it costing three times more. And I thought, you know, I was that there was going to be a whole downfall of the whole family because of this deal. You know, that was almost 20 years ago. So now it's fine. But at the time, it was really scary. And I, you know, I never understood why people didn't build their own studios. It just seems like natural. Why, why pay all this rent for your whole life when you could build an outbuilding behind your building, your house? And have your studio there and have like your little compound. And then when, it, and in Berkeley, it's not especially easy to build in. But after going through that in Berkeley, I went, I get it. I think, you know, it's really scary and it's really hard to do. Um, so, yes, you know, when I lived in Providence, I was sort of, it, it was the in crowd because I went to RISD. And so anyone you meet, especially when you're young, like your age, you know how people say, where'd you go to school? And they're sort of like placing you. And so, you know, I lived in Providence and then where'd you go to school? RISD. Where, what do you do for a living? I teach at RISD. You know, it's like, whoa, you're way up there. And then you go to North Carolina and you're in Appalachia and your students have never heard of Jackson Pollock. The only artist they ever heard of was Norman Rockwell. And I was like, wow, I go from these like crazy sophisticated students to students who've never heard of any, any other artists and stuff. And that was an adjustment. And, you know, I learned a lot and it would not feel that way today. Like, I am sure you could teach at that same school and not feel so isolated. It all has to do with the changes in technology. You know, there was at one time, I researched Baltimore with my husband because I had a job. My first tenure track job was in North Carolina mm-hmm. in the early 80s. So I know it's hard for you to imagine, but there, were no, there was no internet. There was oh, no such thing as internet, really. Yeah. And I mean, not that people had at their houses, People, no one knew had computers, and of course, there was no cell phones. Teaching in Appalachia was really, really isolated. Uh, You know, when I went to grad school, I had to pay for it myself, and I had to get a job. Even in undergrad, I had to work. So, in grad school, Providence at that time was this was like the center for junk jewelry, you know, costume jewelry that you see in like in Macy's and stuff, you know. And and so, I got a job as a model maker at a company the first female model maker they ever had because you know besides the fact that the world is very sexist and still is in that factory and in those factories in general all the women worked the job where they glued rhinestones in in big rooms the men had the other kinds of jobs like mold making 
casting, you know, this, that, and the other. And what would they do is they'd pick the most talented young people out of mold making and move them into model making. So it'd take them like two years to train these people how to make models. They hired me. I don't know why. Uh, I think they thought it was going to be a fun joke. And they were like, you, you know the whole job and it's only been a month. I said, well, yeah, I've been working in metal for years. I know how to do this stuff. So were you doing that type of work, like sculptural mold making um, in grad school? Is that where you kind of built up experience? It was weird. I had to be at work at eight in the morning at this factory. And, you know, they didn't give me much leeway for the fact that I was in grad school. So, like, I missed all the seminars because they wouldn't reschedule them for when I could be there. Oh, wow. And... You know, there was just not much concern about the fact that, you know, the school was expensive and you had to find a way to pay for it. So anyhow, my plan when I got out of grad school was I would freelance model making and then, um, you know, do my art when I wasn't working on models. Because, you know, I eventually got fired from that job because um, I was so harassed. You know, the men didn't like a woman being in their area. And so what they do is, you know, those little Ziploc bags, little tiny ones that maybe crack comes in and stuff, you know, or a little bigger. Um, <laughs> oh, right, they, those ones, yeah. Well, we, we worked with torches. You know, we had, a, you know, solder. And they'd fill a little Ziploc bag with acetylene, zip it up and put a little string in it. And then they'd throw it under my bench, lit. And then it'd explode like a, like a, like a M80 or something. And I'm oh like gosh, working like this. very and, dangerous. Oh, well, it's not dangerous, but what would happen is I'd, I'd flinch because explosion just went off. And then I'd, put a big gouge in my model and I'd have to spend like three hours repairing the mistake, you know, that Uh, occurred. So one day, you know, that happened right when the person who had done it, I looked up and I said, you're such an asshole. And his dad was walking in the door. His dad owned the factory. They had to fire me, but then the next day they hired me back freelance. Oh, nice. For more money, which was weird. Yeah. So anyhow, I had this fantasy that a lot of people have that you'll do this one thing freelance then you'll do your art and so I got a studio I had that all going on I'd go around and get jobs and actually it just it was too hard you know I I don't know if you've done freelance work but again we're talking about a period of time where there was no computers or internet yeah which just makes connecting with and finding those opportunities that much harder I'm sure or you had to go door to door you had to drive around town and go in and see the designers and say do you have any models for me and then you do them and you deliver them, and then they say, we'll pay you at the end of the month, and everything comes by mail, right? Nothing's electronic. Mm -hmm. So then you don't get the check, and you call them. Oh, yeah, okay, we'll send it next month. You know, so that's the kind of thing that was happening. And then what happened is someone had to take disability, like someone got sick at RISD. Uh, I heard about it, and I said, dudes, you better hire a woman. It's nuts. All your students are female, and you don't, you've never hired a woman in this area. They had no female faculty at that time. I'm not saying in the whole school, but uh-huh. this area that I heard about, it was it was an area I studied in, which was metalsmithing and jewelry. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm old, I'm old compared to you. And I, I've been teaching sculpture for 40 years, but I never took a sculpture class. And the, and the reason was when I was an undergrad and a grad, all the rumors that surrounded any woman that went into sculpture was that she was only there to sleep with her professor. But they also wouldn't let women use machines and tools. So you'd go up to a machine and some guy, a student or the teacher would run up to you going, what, are you gonna, what do you want to do? And you'd say, I want to cut this thing. Oh, I'll do it for you. And so the only places that women were just given autonomy were in the crafts. 
photography. Mm-hmm. And think about, think of all the women artists that are older that do these, you know, ceramics, photography, jewelry and metal smithing, printmaking. Mm-hmm. They let women be equal. But in sculpture, that was considered so manly, right? That, I don't know, it was, it was some sort of threat to the guys. You know, it was considered freak of nature for women to be using torches and working with machines and stuff like that. And now there's no difference in sculpture between the men and women. It's a difference between yours generation kind of and when yeah. I was a student. Yeah, and it's it's so easy to take for granted how our experience was so different. I mean, it's just that's such a glimpse I feel into that point in time and we obviously still have a long way to go, but what you're describing is so different from, you know, my experience oh, yeah. in high school, or I'm sure Amanda's experience and I never felt like there was that barrier to entry just in being able to develop a set of skills to be able to do the work that you know right. want to do. Well, when I was in school, the assumption was that if you were an art major, you were going to be an, you were an art major so that you could marry male artists and help them with his career. To become rich, right? Yeah. Oh my god. And so you would like put his slides together like and I know uh. people around my age are a little older where the male artists their wives still do all of the applications for them and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And they studied art, you know, but they never pursued a career. But at Davis, when I arrived there in 85, the shop was set up so that some machines, I'm, I'm six feet tall, so I'm big. But if you're like five feet tall and, you know, weigh less, you know, 30 pounds less, weigh like 98 pounds, we had a couple of machines that they were a little bit like not working correctly. So if the radio arm saw, if you want to change the angle, nobody small could do it. I, I'm not even saying no woman. I'm saying no no small person right, could do it. Right, they just were designed for... Yeah. yeah, interesting. And my shop tech had been in the habit before I came of saying, well, you know, if you want to change the angle, come and get me. So that he'd have students following him around for like half an hour, 45 minutes till he could get mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. And so I had to sit up late on the law and say, you know, we are going to have to get rid of this machine Unless you make it so any 98 pound, five foot tall person can do all of the tasks on the machine. Yeah. And, you know, that caused a big uproar. You know, it was like I was like changing nature or something. Literally within a year, year and a half, I was like in awe of these young students. And now they're probably people in their 50s, right? Because <laughs> um, I was 85. Yeah. Uh, but these women would just go up to the table saw or go up to any machine and just start using it. And I'm like, this never occurred at this place before I was there because it was the same deal as I saw when I was in school. We don't want you to hurt yourself. Let me do this for you. And then it takes power away. Yeah, and it's fascinating to hear about the sort of division of responsibilities career-wise because so much of the conversations that we've been having on the podcast are about, you know, how do you marry your creative work with all of the behind the scenes kind of administrative work that goes into yeah. it? How do you balance and navigate all of that as an artist? And I never realized or thought that that was something that had been divided as a responsibility between men and women, that it was sort of the man's opportunity to focus on the work and that their assistants are more often women were taking on that sort of behind the scenes responsibility. Yeah. Whereas, you know, today now it's very much like an individual. I think everyone yeah. has that responsibility themselves to pursue both angles. Well, one thing that's, that's fairly new, you know, I would say in the last 
15 to 20 years is this idea that you, as an artist, you can make so much money off your work that you can hire a whole staff of assistants. So we've seen on R21, some of the videos that are focusing on the assistants. Mm-hmm. I know uh, there was one, uh, Diane El Hadid's uh, studio, where they sort of showed the different assistants and what they did and how they you know, tried to get her attention, like in bookkeeping or, you know, and then mm-hmm. the other guy's studio manager wanted to get her attention for something else. And you, you can't have that kind of big career without staff now because yeah. there's so there's so much stuff to do. I mean, the, the senior faculty, when I came to Davis, they had, there were some that have pretty big careers. You know, Wayne Tebow was on the faculty and um, Robert Arneson was on the faculty and Manuel Neri, Roland Peterson, they all had really big careers. They never took slides of their work. A photographer did it for them. The gallery would send it normally. And and the galleries did a lot of the applying. You know, like that was sort of one of their jobs was they would put things together for like a Guggenheim uh, application or this application or that. But everything has become so much harder now. Galleries don't have time to do that. They don't have, they don't have staff to do that for artists. And artists are supposed to be proficient in, you know, writing really articulate things about their work and keeping their resume up to date and taking slides of their work and applying for this, that, and the other. The art world has just changed. I mean, even though I love computers and I love what it does, you know, in terms of, look, we're seeing each other talking and you're in Baltimore, you're in San Francisco and I'm in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's like amazing. At the same time, because things have become quote unquote easy, more stuff has been put on us to make sure we do. People say, you got to do Facebook, you got to do Twitter, you got to do this. And you're like, right, it's just never ending. Yeah, like, when do you actually do your work? Yeah, I, I know, I experience that struggle a lot. Like, do I spend hours like queuing up my Instagrams for the next month? Or do I spend hours actually getting my work done? But I can't sell my work if people aren't seeing it. My website tells me that like 95% of the people buying from me are going from Instagram. So it's like, I know I have to put time oh. into it, but it takes away so much time from the creative work. And it and it's so draining spending hours on like your phone or your computer doing this task that feels like a waste of time. But I don't know. I don't know how to how to resolve it. <laughs> Yeah, Lucy, could you tell us how you've managed some of that aspect of your own um, work throughout your career? Has there been a point where you have hired assistants on for anything, or are you really managing that side of your practice solely yourself? Have you um, been able to, to get any help from galleries that you've been working with? What has it looked like for you? You know, for a long time, I had a, um, a very good San Francisco gallery called Stephen Wirtz Gallery. And they closed, you know, a lot of galleries have closed all over the place. And this has been a really tough market for the past decade. It's a funny time because this sort of 1% of artists are doing like really well. And then all the other artists are just like clawing away, you know, trying to just sort of be able to keep their studios and find time to do their work. But early on, it wasn't as complicated because, you know, I keep telling you like, imagine a world without an internet, you know? You probably just want to start screaming, ah, you know, <laughs> how could that be? It used to be very, very time consuming. I was making sculpture. I'd have to photograph it and you could only photograph at night. You need tungsten lights. You have to do test photos and you have to bring them to the lab. They, they do an initial like, you know, development of them. You look at them. Oh, it needs a blue filter. It's too blue or this or that. 
then you reshoot again that night, but it has to be dark. You have tungsten lights, you can't have other light coming in. So I just remember like the weariness of just getting the slides. Now I can shoot during the day. I just, I color balance my digital camera. It's so simple. I use tungsten and natural light. It's so simple and beautiful photographs. I mean, are good enough for me. Let me put it that way. So there was a time I was using assistance, but not that long because I'd find my assistance from my students. So then they'd end up being in my studio and then they'd ask me like, how do you balance, you know, your marriage and your studio work? Or, you know, <laughs> they'd start asking these questions where the minute they ask it, I'm like, I can't get flow, you know, because they're asking me this other thing and I need to be thinking about the work. They weren't sort of professional assistants. They were still like studenty. Sure. And looking for that mentorship themselves. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and they, so they, they wouldn't know how to keep themselves busy. If I was trying to figure something out, they just stand there. Then I felt like too much pressure to make a decision. The last time I used an assistant was, you know, I have a son who's 23. When he was just born, I had an assistant and we took turns, you know, being in the house with him, my being in the studio, I come into, you know, he needed to be fed. Then I, my studio, my assistant would go in and take care of him. Then when we're crossing paths, I tell her what to do. When I went back, to, you know, they need to be fed all the time, these little babies, like every two hours. And it takes them like 40 minutes to eat. So it really feels like every hour and 20 minutes, you're on your way to feed the baby again. So that was the last time I used an assistant. And then I was sort of relieved to have the space for myself because my idea of art making is that you normally don't know what you're doing. You have this sort of idea of what you want to do, but you don't really know what that is. You develop it enough so you can get started. And, you know, a day or two into that, you realize that's really not working or that's stupid. But then you see something in that that's better. And then you have to follow that. And so it's really like, you know, zigzaggy road to get to what you want. I mean, I, I've never been an artist who can plan something out and then I just do it. That's not how I work and that's not how I think. I'm looking for what I don't know. You know, I have an idea, like a feeling of what I want to do. But I don't know what it looks like. So I have to try many things to get it to, to be what I want it to be. So that, that kind of working is not that easy to do with assistants. I'm not opposed to them though, because... I mean, the idea of a studio manager or someone that's doing all the bookkeeping, think of that. Think of all the time you have if you could, you know, hand that off to someone else. But I really think the best assistants are the people that have gone to undergrad and grad school and they're out of school now and they, they just have a much bigger knowledge base and they understand what's going on in the studio. So I think they know how to probably leave the artist alone when they're trying to figure something out. And not say, where did you meet your husband? You know, I would be get, I would get all these like funny questions that I understood why these kids were asking those questions. But at the same time, I don't want to be in the studio to chat about how do I balance this and this, or how did I meet my husband, or you know, why did I pick RISD to go to school? Yeah, of course, it's like your teaching is kind of bleeding into your studio work. Absolutely, yeah. Has that always been the balance for you, um, working as a professor, uh, teaching in various departments, and then maintaining your studio practice alongside that? Well, you know, I just, I'm opposed to that word balance, because I, I doubt anyone has balance ever. Mm-hmm. It's the permanent struggle yeah, over here. It's, <laughs> it's usually like, if you spend too much time in the studio, then all that Instagrammy, all that other stuff you need to do piles up. So then when you... T- you tend to that, then you're not in the studio. And look, we all have to go buy groceries. We have to do our laundry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we have to go to the store for stuff now and then. Yeah. All of that stuff takes time. And then 
if you have a family, if you are in a relationship, you can't like not ever see them. We can't live like Picasso, you know, where there's this whole like family structure supporting what you're doing. Yeah. It always seems like something is not being tended to. And of course, I'm not even talking about how much work it is to teach. You know, people are like so relieved if they get a teaching job, but then they get it and they realize, oh my God, I had no idea it was so much work. Because if you're a lecturer, you just come and teach and leave. But if you're tenure track anywhere, it's the meetings and the committees and the this and the developing that. And it's, it's so much other stuff. If you could just teach and leave, that would be great. And that was also the way it looked to me when I was an undergrad, because that's really what professors did is they taught and left. Yeah. But schools have changed over the years. Like there's a lot less administrative staff. There's more administrators, but less administrative staff for departments. And a lot, all that stuff that those administrative staff aren't doing, we do ourselves. When I first came to Davis, I'd, I'd write out my, my syllabus on a piece of paper at longhand, bring it to the secretary, say, here's my syllabus. She'd type it up because, again, there were no computers. But once we got computers, then it's like the secretary doesn't need to do that for you anymore. And it, the higher administration started putting different tasks on the departmental staff. And then eventually they just got rid of them. So like there's no person in our art department that does that for anybody. We sort of do everything now. Yeah, and it's interesting just to hear, too, from your perspective of having worked through through many changes and, and being able to see how things have evolved and, and to share that is interesting. Are there any other examples of that that you can think of, just how your experience teaching has changed over the years? It's changed a lot. I was looking through some photos recently and came across a picture of me with a bunch of sculpture students I was teaching in the early 90s. And all the students were white. Now, mm -hmm. the student body is much more diverse. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a little diverse then, but it is much more diverse now. The other thing that's changed is email. Like the whole idea of students emailing you all the time. Before email, they never did. They just come to the class and talk to you. So all of that makes, I feel like it's not as personal anymore. So the, I mean, so that has changed, but the students themselves, they've gotten smarter. I find it kind of amazing. The students are so smart and they're so like ready to do things. Like even though they've never done it before, you know, like you sort of give them the parameters of a project and tell them to go for it and they do. Back in what I call the olden days, there was more like, why are we doing this? You know, like there was more questioning, like, why is this art? And and now the students are a little more trusting. It, it, could be, it could be like maybe they weren't used to a female teacher way back when. Now it's not so weird to have a female teacher. It could have been, be a gender thing or it could just be, I don't know, I find uh, your generation, you know, and the students younger, they're just so bright and so uh, uncynical. Hmm, interesting. I'll have to f find it, but I had read this article that was talking about uh, researcher that's been studying uh, college essay, ap like college application essays from the 80s, 90s, early 2000s to right now. And they were saying that grammatical errors, they, were, they stayed exactly the same, like pretty much kids were struggling <laughs> with grammar just as much as, as we always have. Uh, but their essays are getting so much longer and deeper with the thoughts. And mm -hmm. that's like one of the biggest things that they've noticed change is that the access to information makes kids so much hungrier to find more information and to talk about it more and process it more deeply. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's also such a higher volume of students going to college. I wonder if it has something to do with the need to try and differentiate yourself in some way or this kind of pressure to identify a very personal life story and communicate that somehow. But this is the other thing that I think has happened. All of these students for, for at least the last decade have worked so much harder to get into college. It's like you said, it is more competitive to get into college these days. And you know, I shouldn't even tell you this, but when I was in high school, I, I didn't go to a good high school and it was boring. So I didn't pay any attention to anything except my art classes. So my grade point average, I don't know if this was my overall average, but I remember getting a report card. I had 1.9 grade point average and <laughs> I applied to college and got in, right? Why did they think I could go to college? And so I went to college in Wisconsin, but I didn't go to the flagship school, which is Madison. I first went up north to a school. And after one semester, I was getting such high grades. I went, there's something wrong with this school. I can't be doing so good. I'm like a lousy student. So I, <laughs> I transferred to Madison to be further challenged. And then I went to Madison and I graduated with honors, right? But I don't know that you could be that kind of slacker today and get into school. I think, and I know how you do it now. I mean, it's a little different, at least in California. I do get these people that were like, for some reason or other, high school wasn't good for them. So they can't get into college, but they go to community college. And if they do well in community college, then they can transfer to a four-year college. But really my point is, in general, college students have paid so much more attention in their classes you know, than, than really you had to, what I would say in the olden days. Like, I just wanted to be an artist and that was it. You know, it's like, I want to be an artist or I didn't want to live. You know, I have a very romantic, you know, like, you know that I was at New Hampshire, live free or die on their <laughs> license plates. I was like, be an artist or die. And um, and I never thought, you know, I always thought like 35 was so old. So I, I always pictured that would be my end date, you know, so I only have to make it to 35. Um, <laughs> you know how it was, the only artists you ever heard about were the ones that died. And, and a really influential artist to me was Eva Hesse. And she died at mm -hmm. like 34. I just thought, well, that, you know, uh, that'd be great if I could be an artist till I was 35. That'd be the lifespan. So I think because these students have just paid more attention and they have better skills, you know, like, and, they, and they, they trust the process a little more. And of course, it's not every single one, but it's much more than it used to be. Yeah. And so how were you starting to find opportunities to show this work that you were making? It's been much harder. I have to tell you, um, you know, my gallery closed and I, I've had various people in, uh, in my studio to look at the work. I do have, a, I have gallery representation in Germany, in Cologne. In San Francisco, I want a home base gallery. And a few years ago, like three or four years ago, a gallerist came in and before she even looked at the work, she said, there's three problems. And I'm like, what's that? You know? And she said, you're female, you're old. And you make objects. And I'm sort of like, I can't wow. do anything about any of those things, you know? <laughs> yeah, those are not, that's not constructive. There's nothing you can change about it. There's nothing you can change. And I mean, basically, she was being sort of honest about it's much harder. And certainly my, my gallery that I had for 20 years told me the same thing. It's so much harder to sell work by female artists. Even, like, even now? Yes, even now. 
Because actually, I was visiting my old gallerist recently, and she was she like private dealing. You know, she has a website, but she's only showing male artists. And I said, "Is it harder to show women?" And she said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's, you know, so much harder to get anything happening with women." So if you think about it, if if a gallerist finds they have to do twice as much work to place your work, you know, they're not going to be as enthusiastic. The thing about ageism is like, well, what can you do about that? It seems like. You know, the best time to be a woman artist is your age till around 43-ish, you know. And unless the world change, you know, what happens is you kind of get dropped. It's just like the movies when I was growing up. I never understood why, you know, there were these ingenues. They'd be in a number of movies and then they'd disappear and then there'd be new ingenues. But the actors would stay and get older and older and they'd be playing against younger and younger female actresses. And I'm like, why does that happen? It's a bias in our culture. Yeah, that's so wild. I mean, it's sadly unsurprising, but even to hear that from you, I mean, especially you've got work in collections like the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, Oakland Museum, Berkeley Art Museum, and I mean, having such an extensive exhibition history and all of these great collections uh, that your work is a part of to still be facing those kinds of challenges or how calling into question the value of your work, its ability to, to sell to collectors who maybe, you know, place a certain amount of value on the, those types of recognitions and mm -hmm. to hear that it's still still such a challenge. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I don't think it's any easier for women today. You know, there have been some collectors over the years that just collect work by women, and that's very helpful. Mm -hmm. But the majority of my students have always been female. Mm -hmm. And the most amazing students I've had have been mainly female. And then they disappear. You know, they graduate and they're gone. Then male artists, uh, male students I've had will sometimes go and have these big careers. And you were like, they were just okay. You know, they were, they were good. But every now and then you get students that are just like super amazing. You can't believe it. And all I can say is that there's some things working against women artists. And I don't mean to be depressing, but, and you, you could say, well, how could that be? Most of the gallerists, a lot of gallerists are female, mm -hmm. but you really have to say, you have to look beyond that and go, Who's buying the art? Who right. Who's writing out the check? And that's when I think it gets harder. Yeah, because it's so much a part of the mainstream, more a part of the mainstream conversation now. And I guess just hearing that there, I mean, there's so many other deep roots that take a long time to shift and change and yeah. for new collectors to come into the space and to open up opportunities for other artists. And I, I guess hearing this is making me realize that that's, that's a slower process, that that takes a longer time than just women to gain more visibility and for it to be. Yeah. Such a part of the the mainstream conversation. It's not. That's just a, a first step towards really creating those opportunities in those markets. Well, the other thing you could look at to just sort of like you know go, oh, is this is this just one person's opinion or is this real? You look at auction prices. So you can look at like the yeah. highest price for like a female artist that's really well known, and then see how that relates to someone equally as well known. It's male, and usually their prices are going to be many times more. Because mm -hmm. every now and then when I read in like the New York Times, they'll, they'll mention some auction prices, like the highest price for Marilyn Minter or the highest price for so-and-so. And you'll just go, that's not very much. I mean, there's artists I've actually never heard of whose work sells for more because it'll be published now and then. And you'll go, who is that? How can this artist sell, sell their work for so much? And I've never heard of them. You know, I go look at art. I just spent over two weeks in New York and 
all I did was look at art. So it's, it's, it's not like I, I'm just like, don't get out enough. And I, I don't know who these artists are. Right. I feel like I'm pretty fluent. That's the truth right there. If you look at auction prices. Mm -hmm. Have you had any people that have been really influential for you in your own career, either as mentors? Because uh, on the other hand, you have also had uh, really great opportunities exhibition wise and have work in collections. And so I'm curious to know how some of those things that did come about were able to happen. I mean, one of the things is, you know, this sort of story I told you, you know, like, I'm going to be an artist or die. And then, of course, I'm only going to live till be, I'm 35 because I just thought that was my fate. You know, I was just really determined to, to be an artist, like whatever I have to do to be able to make my work. And so I, you know, one, one of the things was, I know it's kind of a hard thing to talk about, but when women pick their partners, you got to pick someone that's, you know, not going to be a baby, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, can pick up their socks and put it in a laundry basket and not think that when you, you know, you're living together, suddenly you are the helpmate for them. Sure. Like a real equal partner. That's yeah. Equal partner and respectful and your- of what you do. I had the last of those old kind of boyfriend. And I was just like, this is not for me. I'll just be single, no kid, no marriage, but I'm going to be an artist. Right. And then, you know, I met someone and we've been together a very long time now, but, you know, early on there were a few like tiffs over like, you know, if you don't want this, now's your chance to go because this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be this other thing that you like grew up seeing in the movies. He was interested in that life too. So I, I was sort of lucky that way. And then, you know, doubly lucky that I was able to have a kid, which, you know, I just didn't think would be possible in what I chose. I really feel a lot of it in my case was luck because I did not have family support. You know, I was, I've been on my own really from college on. So I never had, um, I had to make sure I could take care of myself because if I got into trouble, like with rent, I couldn't call a parent and say, could you help me out? That wouldn't happen for me. I think if you're an artist and you have strong family support, you're really lucky and you should take advantage of that. You know, if you have family that can help you go to the next level in some ways, you know, or just say, look, if you, if you're going to do this and you run into trouble, we'll help you take them up on that because this is a really tough field to be in. You have to learn how to live within your means. Like you can't do everything. If you say you're going to be an artist, then you're not necessarily able to go on fancy vacations or, you know, have a lot of clothes or you can't have everything. For me, I was always happiest when I had a studio and money to buy materials. And then everything else, we were like total budget. I mean, there were many, many years we lived on rice and beans. You know, we just, we didn't spend any money on food because we wanted it for art supplies. Yeah. And I'm not being romantic about that kind of life. It's, it's just like, we were okay with it because this is what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think is a disadvantage for young people today is you can't live as cheaply as I could have lived when I was young before the internet and cell phones because a house phone was like 22 bucks. You didn't have cable. There was Even if there was cable, I don't know if there was back then, but we didn't have cable. That was really it. Like now you have to have a laptop or a desktop that works. You need to have yeah. a cell phone, a smartphone actually that works Mm. and you need internet those are like three things that are you constantly have to pay for because how long can you have a computer four or five years and you have to get a new one how long can you have a phone if it doesn't fall on the toilet you can have it maybe what four years five years max you know like so there's these higher expenses that you have so you just have to figure out like what you know, how do you do this thing within the amount of money you can make and giving yourself enough time to do the work? I also was lucky that I got a, a good gallery early on. And that was really helpful. 
but I, I, the, the last number of years has not been easy. You know, the San Francisco art market is really tough. You know, there's galleries, but they work really hard. It's just not as open and as expansive as it used to be. And part of that is rents. You know, that's why a lot of galleries close. Yeah, I was going to ask if you feel like the one of the main sources of that is just how much harder people have to work to stay afloat um, due yeah. to high cost of living in studios and gallery space. Absolutely. I mean, if, if gallery space was cheap, there'd be a lot more galleries. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, you, you must know how, because you live in San Francisco, mm-hmm. crazy expensive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were so many artists that used to live in San Francisco that moved to Oakland. And even Oakland's not cheap. I don't actually understand why more people don't move to just places that are super cheap and start creating their own community. You know, whatever, wherever that is. It seems sort of insane for a young artist to live in San Francisco, unless you have some other kind of income. Sure, yeah. How do you do it? And yet it does seem like New York and LA and San Francisco are really magnets for groups of artists, especially artists right out of grad school. Yeah, I think there's this sense of, I don't know, maybe it has to do with proximity, um, this like sense of there being more opportunities in these denser areas just because of the scale of things or, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can relate to that, but also made a conscious decision right after school to stay in Baltimore, partly for that reason, as opposed to trying to move to a city like New York right away. And even now, you know, I've been out of school for, I guess, six years and it's it's still a struggle to be in in San Francisco and it's been only two years so I don't really know what the future holds or how long or you know how exactly I'll be able to sustain so it's still very much figuring it out along the way and you know having conversations like this with other artists to try and to dissect how they're making it work and what it it looks like for them and so I think that there is a little bit of mystery um, still for me but I, I can relate to the feeling of you know being in a more concentrated area where I I guess there's, it would seem there's more visibility, um, just larger scale of museums and galleries and things like that. So like the potential or promise for future opportunity seems a little greater maybe than in cities where it might be smaller, more affordable. But I mean, I don't know. It's interesting because in, you know, service of the work, like you've also talked about having the priority be allowing yourself the time and space to, to make your work. There, there are always trade-offs. So maybe that means living in a more affordable area so you can have access to the space and resources that you need, even though you might be a little more isolated in terms of the creative community. And so I, I don't know what the real solution is you described it really well i mean there is that if i move to like new york or la or san francisco or whatever chicago even then everything's going to be much more expensive i'm going to spend more time working to pay for those things less time in my studio okay so if i move to uh bend oregon or you know like pick a place yeah it's like this catch 22 then i'm working and there's nobody around me to talk to no galleries you know, one of the things I, my husband and I have always done is like, if like we were young now, we'd move to Vallejo, right? Because it's, it's a cheap town or cheap, much cheaper than Berkeley or San Francisco and Oakland. But you can get to San Francisco. I mean, so you, you can take the ferry to San Francisco. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're not that cut off. You know, you could still go to openings and events. And so you're sort of there and not there. And, and really, I would have stayed there if it wasn't for the fact that when my son was born, besides the fact that he, you, you do become the place you grew up in many ways, because peer influence is really strong for children. 
the other thing was, if I went into San Francisco, I couldn't just turn around and drive back. You know, in the years that I lived in Vallejo, the traffic got so much worse. I wouldn't even try to come back at a certain time. I would just, you know, meet a friend in Berkeley and go to dinner and then drive later. But when you have a child, you can't do that. You know, you have to, if someone's watching your kid for you, you have to be back at a certain time. It is a real dilemma, like the whole question of like, how do you be an artist when you're doing things that, and you're making things that only you want to make and only you care about at the moment, you know, until maybe you get a gallery and people interested, but there's no guarantee that anyone's ever going to be interested in your work. Like if you knew that now, like if someone were to say to you, Amanda, no one's ever going to care about your work, right? I know. What no. would you do? Would you say, <laughs> would you say like, oh, that, I don't give a shit. I'm going to make it anyhow. Fuck you. Right. Or would you yeah. say, oh, okay, I think I'll become a dental hygienist or, you know, <laughs> I think I'll go, you know, work at the t-shirt shop. Like yeah. you have to, like how, what is this to you? Because to me, it's not a career. To me, it's a way of living. Right? Oh, yeah. So everything is about that and protecting that. Yeah. And, and even when my son grew up, I've said to him a couple of times, you know, I'm really sorry I didn't take you on like vacations, like your friends had gone on, you know, and he was like, Hey, no, it was fine. You know, I went on some road trips with dad. It was totally fine. My friends were jealous of me, but he didn't do like, we didn't take him to France when he was six years old. And, you know, we didn't take him, you know, he had friends doing all this kind of stuff and asking yeah. him where he's going to go. And we were like, you're going to, you know, Berkeley day camp. <laughs> you know, that's where you're going in the summer. <laughs> um, but, you know, he doesn't feel like that hurt him in any way. And so I feel like being an artist is also figuring out how to build a life where, all of that stuff will fit in, like the studio time, having a family. Like, how can you make art if you don't live? Like, you need to live in the world. You need to have experiences. The ideas that are generated by your art come from your life experience. And so if you're not allowing yourself to have any of those, mm -hmm. how are you going to make anything meaningful? Because ultimately, all the art that we care about communicates something about the time in which it was made. That's why we're interested in it, because not only is it like sort of beautiful or this or that, but it also like says something about that period of time it was made. So you have to like be of your moment. You have to experience the world. And the other thing that people do that is, I think, very effective is you scale down. If you only have so much time, you become you know much more organized about your time. I keep these things called studio books. They're like studio journals. I started them in 1989. And, you know, it's a book that's like this. But what time I'm done, it doesn't shut. It's like, it's full of every, you know, it's notes on what I'm doing and to-do lists. And it, I used to do them on scraps of paper and then I'd lose them. Yeah, so I started, yeah. So I started keeping it a book where I date, I date it. And then I, in the front, I have an index so I can find things fast that are in the book. Recipes for how to do something or how I did something that's, that I have to do in a certain order. And if it's three months later, I forgot, how did I do that again? I have it in my book. The reason I started that was teaching was taking a lot of my time. When I come into the studio, I'd start collecting things to, to bring to particular students. Oh, so-and-so, he needs, I need to bring him a little bag of this, or this is for that student. And then I would be like, I need to get into my work. And so by keeping that book, I would read a few pages and I'd sort of, it sort of take me to the, to that place that I was at before I left the last time. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like, I've never thought of it that way. The way I'll show you how I do mine. The way I do my, like, I, I just call it my sketchbook. I do one side it's all like drawings and sketches and things I'm working on. And then when I flip it, it has all my to-do lists and stuff. And I try uh -huh. to do it. I 
didn't process it in this way. I was just thinking like written stuff, drawn stuff, keep it separate. Otherwise it gets confusing, but it does make sense to separate your like kind of your ideas of what you want to be working on. And and the more, I don't know, just getting back into that headspace, keeping that separate from all of your like little to-do lists and and reminders and and deadlines and stuff. And I've never thought Mm -hmm. of it that way, but I feel like I'm going to approach my sketchbook a little differently now. So when I started, I would make myself write in it every day. Like when I came in the studio, date and time. When I left, time. So I could see how many hours I was spending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't have to do that important. anymore. But yeah. um, what a great form of record keeping, too, though. This is this is an older book, but it's also layers of pictures. Yeah. How a piece changes. Oh wow. And oh. so. When I began this, I was doing it with Polaroids, but now I have one of those little four by six printers. Yeah. So I just take a picture, print it, take a picture and print it. It's almost like a flip book of the piece's history. I also have, a, a, you know, like the kind of paint I used on this. And this is urethane, a little chunk of the urethane that I cast and, you know, other notes on paint in the front. Yeah, it's so cool. For those listening who cannot see, it's a <laughs> book that is chock full of, it looks like four by six photographs that are all annotated, written all over with notes, formulas. It's really cool to see this and show dated. process. So yeah. then in the, the first page, this is yeah, what I yeah. call the index. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. so on the index, I have... Uh, it's like a table of contents. It's just how to do stuff. Like uh, I was putting flocking on something at one time. So September 26, 08, how, how to glue the flocking on, how I do it is in there because mm-hmm. I would know how to do it today. I'd have to read, reinvent my process. And so that ends up saving me a lot of time. Yeah. Sometimes you can go, I only have this many hours. And, and then you forget how you did something. You spend all this time like reinventing it. But then you end up like years later, like you have this, this is a whole history of my, really, if there was a fire, these are what I would take. Like if there was a choice between like grabbing a few pieces or these books, I would take the books. Mm-hmm. How many books do you have like that? I have, um, well, this is J-K-L. I think I'm on M now. This is, I just started lettering them. So I think I'm on M. Oh, wow. So starting with A, from, now you're on J. Yeah, it started in 1988. And that was that was a different book. And then since then, I've only used this book. But they don't make it anymore. I only have one blank one left. They don't have to go to another style of book. Oh. But it's been so helpful. Otherwise, I, I think I would go insane. You know, there's... You, you guys have jobs, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm doing, uh, my art is my job now. Oh, I'm, good. I like just passed the, the first year of being fully self-employed and it's been awesome, incredibly difficult, very bootstrap budget, but it is, it's really cool. I have to like, in the moments of stress, remind myself like I am my own boss. Mm-hmm. I am my own boss <laughs> and that helps. <laughs> Yeah, and we've each done all kinds of different jobs, I think, over the the last few years. Um, But I currently work part-time at SFMOMA, and then I still do a little independent college counseling, and then also work in the studio and been painting murals and, you know, try and find commissions and things like that. Yeah, and that's, it seems to me that there's many more jobs now than ever to work in, like, a museum, to work in, you know, these foundations that are down in LA, there's more of them down in LA. Mm-hmm. And also to be artist assistants, but then you do need to live in like New York or LA or not so much San Francisco, but New York and LA in terms of yeah. if you want to be an assistant to an artist. But you know, I've met I've met a lot of artists that work as assistants. 
I don't think that's an easy job either. I think you have to have a really strong ego to be spending your days working on another artist's work and then and then thinking, oh, I wish I could be in my own studio doing my work. Because certainly when I teach, I'd rather be doing my own work. Like I see these students doing this stuff and I want to be doing it, you know, and mm-hmm. and I can't, you know, that's that's my job is to, t- to teach, not to be doing my own work. So I think it's just tough for all of us. And Amanda, you're in the best position possible, even though you say it's really hard of just being able to do your work and doing the work you want to do and selling it. But the other thing to remember is not all work is that saleable. You know, there are people who do work and for instance, the work I do now, I don't know how saleable it is, but it's the work I want to do. It all all depends on what your goals are and what you want to do. Yeah. I definitely have to have a balance of balance of work that I know is going to sell because I do a lot of more uh, like product type design and and artwork. Um, I mostly do like illustration and fiber art. Mm -hmm. So I make all these little things that I know can sell. I can sell a lot of them to a lot me more funds towards the projects I'm more passionate about that are maybe not going to sell but I'm happy doing them oh so I guess that is that is the like the part that feels more job like where I like I make all these holiday ornaments for Christmas time and I'm like okay I have to make like a thousand ornaments right now Mm -hmm. that's not very fun because I the the fun part of it of designing them is over now it's just repeating and making enough Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but also dealing with shipping them or you know Mm -hmm. all that other stuff stuff. yeah Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, rather than ever think that you're going to reach any kind of balance, it's better to think about it as juggling. Yeah. You know, because it, you're basically trying to keep a number of things in the air at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what you said earlier about one thing taking precedent, whereas another thing falls behind, is probably a more yeah. accurate visual metaphor than thinking that, you know, everything will sort of get equal attention all of the time right. as the, right. the kind of balance that you know, we're striving for because that's just not realistic, but it's really about prioritizing, you know, different things at different moments or seasons or even hour by hour, maybe. Yeah. And so are you, are you able to go off and do residencies? I've done a few. Yeah. um, None lately, but um, I went to the Vermont Studio Center a few years ago. And then uh, there's a small one called Proyecto Ace in Argentina. Um, I did just out of school. And actually, one of the the most helpful was more sustained. It's an organization that's no longer around, but it was based in Annapolis, Maryland. So it was about 30 minutes south of Baltimore. Um, And that was a year long. So I think that really taught me to try and maintain and, and integrate kind of regular studio practice while I was also starting to work jobs after college and Mm -hmm. um, just figure out what that dynamic was going to be like. Um, So that actually really taught me a lot about how to make that work and and to make my work a priority um, to fulfill, you know, the certain number of hours that were expected for it. But I I do find now that I'm craving more of those retreat style residencies and um, it is hard to get kind of regular sustained time in the studio. But I like the way that you talk about your book and I feel like, you know, I have a sketchbook, but I think that making it more, I guess, treating it more holistically would help to get into that headspace a little faster and to have something that can kind of pull you into the studio when you do have just a limited number of hours there. And also if you if you keep lots of notes on how you did something, if you do sell something and then later they need to 
information about it. You just pull out the, I mean, that's what I do. I just pull out the book and photograph the pages and send them to them. You know, like I, I have all the information. Mm-hmm. It just seems so much like you can just see your, your whole studio practice in a linear way by going through the books. Yeah. I teach a class um, that I insist they do this just for this one quarter, just to see what it's like. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be for everybody or they might not see the value of it now because, you know, they're not out of school and, you know, dealing with all of the conflicting demands. They think undergrad school is really hard, right? And, you know, you don't want to say to them, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> you know, you think this is hard. Wait till you're out of school. You know, <laughs> this, it's like many times harder, many times. Mm-hmm. When you're in art class, you have critique, you have group critique, you have a whole class giving you their feedback on what it is you've just done. And then you yeah. get grades and you get all this sort of like reinforcement, positive reinforcement most of the time. Yeah. When you're out of school, it's how do you get anyone to even talk to you honestly about your work? You yeah. should get the sort of, you get the equivalent of you go girl kind of stuff because, yeah. you know, your friends don't want to say, they don't want to ask those hard questions because... They want to be your friend. They want to be supportive. They don't want to upset you. And they know how hard it is for you to do what you're doing. You know, but you might need someone in, to come into your studio and kick your butt. Like, why are you doing this? Or, you know, what does this mean? Like, not attack you, but sort of like give you some hard questions about what it is you're doing so you can help push your work forward. Getting that in your studio is not easy when you're out. Yeah, it's really hard to find a... Uh, like- good honest feedback as an artist outside of school and I know that was one of the first things that I noticed was lacking after I graduated and I then started like sending pictures to friends that I had gone to school with and I was like please give me some feedback I'm I'm stuck here (laughs) and it it helps a lot but it's it's not the same as having a whole bunch of people that some of them probably don't even like you telling you about your work and what (laughs) what yeah, they got you out have of to it be a lot more proactive <laughs> for sure about seeking that out um, yeah but it's been so amazing to hear about your experience Lucy throughout the years um, both teaching and working as an artist and how so many things have changed dramatically um, over the course of really just a few decades um, but then how many things are still um, in a lot of ways the same um, mm-hmm. and also just what it has been like to live and work here in the Bay Area. Yeah. Can you just tell us uh, where people can find your work if they want to take a look and um, follow your work and career? Yeah, that would be my website, which is lucypoles.com, L-U-C-Y-P-U-L-S.com. Well, I feel like we could just keep talking with you all day. There's so much we can learn from you. And I just want to say thank you, Lucy, so much again for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, you're you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And I really admire what you both are doing with this podcast. Oh, thank you. We appreciate it. I was a little concerned that I would be like the grumpy old person on your show because... (laughs) Oh, no. Because I... you know, I, I just think that it's so amazing to be an artist. You know, it's such an amazing thing, but it's also really hard. And that if you're going to be an artist, like I said before, you, you have to make decisions. You have to prioritize things mm-hmm. and yeah. be disciplined. Most people have a hard time just making a living. You're trying to make a living and do this other thing that requires time, materials, you know, funding, space, and it'll eventually get better. 
And that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of our episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. A quick one other quick question for you, Lucy. Can you tell me the correct way to pronounce your last name? You know, I don't know. (laughs) Or whichever you prefer. I come from a big pulse. family, okay. so most mm-hmm. of my family says pulse, like the pulse of your wrist. I've always said pulse, like it ends with a Z. And mm-hmm. I always say, like, why do I do that? Because pulse is kind of cooler, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm.